variety, but I mean, there's, there's so much good in blending everything together, you know, and, and embracing your heritage and your culture, you know, from another country, but still being proud to be an American, you know, and share that with other folks, I think is very important. It's like I spoke it into existence. Then I think back like, no, I did it. It was hard work, sacrifice, discipline, commitments, big balls, big falls, bigger ups, good intentions. Take a look in the mirror. I'm proud of who looks back. So I stand tall, lace up my J's, grab my book bag and... everyone welcome to episode number five of the raj and bubs pod i am your co-host raj patel happy tuesday afternoon hope hope all of you are doing well Sabrut, how you doing man i'm doing well i'm doing well can't believe we're already on episode five uh this has been a blast uh and excited to share uh the story of our guest today yeah, yeah, we, we've been loving all the feedback, the text messages, the IG messages that you're getting. It really just, it reinforces to us that we're kind of onto something very cool and unique here. And we, we really like just having these conversations and sharing these stories. So it's it's been a lot of fun for us. Um, so today's guest I'm very excited about. Um, he's a step away from a, a lot of our previous uh, South Asian American guests. He's actually a first-generation uh, Mexican-American who's been here uh, for 70 years, if that gives you any inclination to his... 71, actually, he just turned. So that gives you any inclination to kind of uh, his story and how much he has to share. Um, he is a Georgetown alumni. He currently resides in Austin, Texas. He was born uh, in, around Corpus Christi, I believe. He is an attorney by practice and thereafter went on to become a uh, municipal judge here in Austin, Texas for several years where he had a very prolific career from what I uh, understand and have heard. And uh, beyond that, he's just had a very cool journey along the way and it's been fun getting to know him and chat with him. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, welcome Judge David Garza. Please, please, all rise, all rise. Yes, yes. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, good afternoon, Raj and Savrut. It's good to be with you here today. Yeah, we're very Thanks very for taking excited. the time. Yeah, my pleasure. I also want to call out Raj recently moved to Austin. If you're putting the pieces there together, he didn't meet the judge via the courts. They met through a mute, <laughs> through his son. Uh, so Raj is still doing all right down in Austin. Uh, it's just a network connection here. Yeah, there, there was no legal incident that took place that fostered this connection. <laughs> it was I worked closely with his son, uh, Aaron Garza, who's a great guy. So he put me in touch when I told him about this podcast and what we're trying to do. And he's like, oh, you should definitely talk to my dad. He's got such a cool story and uh he he was absolutely right so uh we'll just jump right into it judge um you know in a nutshell here just tell us a little bit about yourself who you are your journey and uh just dive right in well good thank you um well as you said my name is david garza i i live here in austin and uh, i'm retired i retired after uh, about 25 years as a judge and other positions before that I grew up in Corpus Christi, which is a town along the Texas coast, uh, south of here, uh, for my first six or seven, eight years of my life in Corpus Christi. But then we moved out into a rural uh, town outside of Corpus Christi named Petronila. 
just a small rural community. I mean, our nearest neighbors were like a mile away in either direction from us. And I was the fifth of nine children, but that's where I lived for the the formative years of my life in Petronila. And uh, I went to school there in Petronila and then to a little another town called Bishop High School for ninth and 10th grade. And then, uh, then I moved into town with some relatives to go to another school at, in Corpus Christi called Carroll High School. The reason I moved to Carroll High School when, when I was at Bishop was because I wrote an essay in an English class talking about how I felt there was all this covert racism that existed in Bishop. As a result of that essay, I was called to the principal's office and had asked to explain why I felt that way. And in my essay, I also mentioned that after this year, sophomore year, I was going to move to Corpus Christi and go to Carroll High School because I thought things would be better over there. And so that's how I ended up at Carroll. Uh, But graduated from Carroll High School and uh, went on to the University of Houston, even though my high school counselor told me that he didn't think I was college material and that I should consider learning a trade instead. And looking back on that, I wonder how many other Hispanic kids he mentioned that he said that to, yeah. you know. So I thought I was getting away from the covert racism that I felt in Bishop. And yet here it was still at Carroll High School, you know, from my high school counselor. So anyway, I totally disregarded him and went on to college and ended up graduating. Can we get a time frame so like we could set the... Sure. Uh I graduated in 1969 from high school, and then I went to uh, uh, one year at a local college called Del Mar College, and then I transferred to the University of Houston, and eventually graduated from the University of Houston with honors, I might add, and then went on from from there to uh, Georgetown University Law School in Washington, D.C. I recall when I was applying to law schools... I applied to 15 law schools across the country from, you know, UCLA, UC Davis, Northwestern in Chicago, uh, Georgetown, Harvard, Stanford. And I got into 13 out of the 15 wow. schools. Uh, and I narrowed it down to Northwestern in Chicago and Georgetown <laughs> because I had a, uh, I, I just like, Northwestern and what they were offering. But I also had a prof- two professors at, at Houston, who one who attended Georgetown as a student and one who taught at Georgetown. And they both talked very highly, spoke very highly about Georgetown. And, and the professor who taught at Georgetown said, what better laboratory to study law than Washington, D.C.? And True. the other thing that made me decide on Georgetown was my wife, who back then was my girlfriend. I hadn't even asked her to marry me yet. She said, if you go to Chicago, I will not come visit you because it is too (laughs) darn cold. (laughs) And I said, okay, that's it. I guess I'm going to Georgetown. She's she's not wrong. It's still pretty chilly out here. That makes me glad I was already in Chicago when I started dating my my wife because I'm sure she would have said something similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, you know, went to Georgetown and graduated and worked in D.C. for a year or two in the public defender's office. And then we decided to start a family and decided we we better move back to Texas because 
that's where our support system was, both our families and that sort of thing. And so, so we moved back and we said, we'll move. I, I mentioned the story of not wanting to go to Corpus Christi because of the extended family I had there. We didn't want to move back to Houston and we didn't want to live in Dallas. And we said, Austin or San Antonio, wherever one of us finds a job first, that's where we'll go. I came to Austin to uh, study for the bar exam. My wife stayed in Houston, I mean, in D.C. I would send her the want ads. This was all, of course, before the Internet and all that. And uh, she would apply for jobs, and she ended up getting a job in Austin. So that's how we ended up in Austin. So, And it's been great. Wow. You know, uh. back in, nine, I guess it was 1980 when we moved to Austin. So. Nice. Yeah, Austin's a beautiful city. I spent a year there myself uh, in 2014, so definitely uh, a great town there. Uh, but Judge Garza wanted to take a take a step, uh, take it further back, and, and learn a little bit more about your childhood. Uh, what was that like? You, you mentioned you have a fairly large family. Uh, also, heard stories of your family being sharecroppers. Love to dive into that. Sure. Um... We I grew up in that like I said in the rural part of in the little town called Petronila and just outside of Corpus and yeah my 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 parents uh, worked the land the farms there it was basically cotton and sorghum and that sort of thing and you know from an early age as soon as you were old enough maybe eight or nine years old we all went to work in the fields you know after school and on the weekends and that sort of thing chopping cotton, weeding the fields. And and then, you know, later on when the crops came in, we picked cotton, did that. And as I said, as once you were old enough, we made money, but we all contributed it to the family pot, as it were. Yeah. And then, you know, our parents over the summer, you know, I remember we used to go to J.C. Penney's at the beginning of the summer and pick out a, a whole wardrobe for next year's schooling and school year mm-hmm. and put it on layaway. You're, do you know what layaway is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And so, uh, you know, and then paid it off a little bit every, every week in the summer. And then by the end of the summer, it was all paid off and you got this, you know, big set of new clothes and stuff to start the new year. But that's how we, uh, I mean, all of us did that. All my brothers and sisters, we all picked cotton. and On days where you didn't have school or, you know, you didn't have other obligations, how many how many work hours is that? does that typical day look like? Uh, I'd say about seven to eight hours a day, you know, when we were like picking cotton. We'd get up yeah, early in like the yeah, early full time job. Yeah, it was. I mean, everybody had to contribute to to the to the family, you know, income. So, yeah, yeah. And then, what I I know you said you were the first of your siblings, nine siblings, to go to college. What was kind of the impetus for you to want more, strive for more? You know, go to a high school where you thought there might be less racism, less barriers to entry. Kind of what prompted that with you need to kind of push for that? Well, I had a, a teacher in my middle school years at Petronella who was kind of a, a hippie liberal type, you know, and, uh, and he always, he took an interest in, in, and he was Anglo and, you know, the majority of the kids at Petronella were Hispanic and he took an interest in a lot of the Hispanic kids, but he was a, a really 
big mentor for me because he always said to me, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. Don't let anybody tell you you can't or that you're not good enough or, or that you're not college material or anything like that, you know. And so he always, you know, made me think, I can do this. I mean, and, and you know, I was like not the valedictorian of my eighth grade graduating class, but I was the salutatorian, you know. So, yeah. you know, we were, you know, pretty smart. And, uh, you know, so that he always had me thinking, I I know I can do better. I know I, I know there's more out there. And for some reason, I just I was sensitive to that sort of stuff. The uh, the covert racism that because like I mentioned in my essay at, at, at Bishop High School, I said, you know, you you allow us to go to your school. You allow us to play on your f- sports teams and all of that. But heaven forbid, if I wanted to date one of your daughters, you know, that would be the end of that, you know, and so. It was just so obvious. It was one of these proverbial towns where railroad track ran down the middle of the, ro- of the of the town and the whites lived on one side and people of color lived on the other side. And so wow. so that got me to thinking, you know, I, there, there's got to be more. There's got to be a better place, you know, where people aren't going to try to hold you back. And also at that time, I think, a lot of Hispanic kids didn't think like the Anglo kids and, you know, think, well, when I graduate from high school, I'm going to go to college. You know, it just, it wasn't expected for Hispanic kids to go to college. And in fact, what was expected is you graduated from college and you go into the military. And I had two older brothers that did that. You know, they got out, finished high school, joined the Air Force. And then later on, that became their entry uh, into higher education. But that's kind of a, the, the roundabout way to, to doing that. But I said, I don't want to join the military. Plus, when I graduated from high school, of course, the draft was in effect and Vietnam and all that. And, and you know, so I, I, I didn't want to join the military, and, you know. But that kind of I got me thinking, you know, I want to do something different. I want to break the mold. I don't want to go in the military. I want to go to college. And so so my friend, my teacher, uh, whose name is Alan Custer, he uh, he he said, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You know, I need- it, pro- it probably it probably g- gives him great joy to see what a success story uh, your your career was. Yeah. he And, and I always mentioned he's. He was the best, the greatest mentor, you know, in my career. And I've had a lot of people help me along. But if it hadn't been for him to just seeing a kid with potential and trying to push him along, you know, say, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do, you know. Yeah. So I'm just curious because you mentioned what of a kind of a overt um, or, you know, noticeable racism there was in the town you grew up in. What were some of the most glaring examples of that? Because, like, for us, we've talked about it on previous episodes. Like, kind of, we noticed it a little, you know, mostly post 9 11 is where, like, I kind of, for the first time in my life, really felt it. But, like, outside of that, you know, obviously, once in a while, it, things still happen in this day and age, but it wasn't something where, like, my day to day life, I think about is there some sort of racist hostility or mentality towards me where I live or anything like that? Like that didn't exist for me. And it sounds like that was different, very different for you. Like, can you elaborate on that? Well, 
growing up in Petronila, I didn't really feel that that much. It was until I went to Corpus Christi to Carroll High School and and lived there for a while that I felt it. And Petronila, I went to a school that had one classroom for every grade from first to eighth grade, just one room. So it was the same 15, 18 kids every year advancing to the next grade. And, you know, it was about half and half Anglo and Hispanics. And and we just grew up together. So, you know, we, we liked each other. We, you know, there was no hostility between the, 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 the two groups. It wasn't until I went to Corpus Christi that I re- recall, because, you know, there weren't that many Hispanics at Carroll, and my best friends were all Anglo. But I remember oftentimes walking into a restaurant with a bunch of Anglo kids, and I'm the only Hispanic, and I get all these stares, you know, people looking at me like, what's he doing here? You know, that kind of thing. And that was more prevalent in in Austin, I mean, in Corpus Christi than, than it was in Bishop, but it was that kind of thing. I found out just recently when I was talking to Alan Custer's daughter that he was run out from Petronila. He was blackballed because he was he was always trying to do more for the Hispanic kids and mm-hmm. and, and the Hispanic uh, parents. I found out that the school had two two PTAs. They had an Anglo PTA and they had an Hispanic PTA, and they never met together. You know, That's it was crazy. like we're, you know we'll deal with this over here, and then we'll deal with these people over here. I never realized that until uh, Alan's daughter told me just recently, but. And he was trying to change that, and they got rid of him. They said, you know, you're a rebel rouser. We don't need you here. And, and they ran him out of Petronila. So, but Judge Garza, yeah. did you, did you, uh, you, you briefly mentioned sports. We're both big sports fans. Uh, did you play any ball gro- uh, growing up in high school, or did you play any sports there? Yeah, I, I, at Bishop, I played football. And then when I went to Carroll, I also played football my junior year, but it didn't take me long to realize that I was just a live dummy for the other guys that were much better <laughs> yeah. than me. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I finally quit playing football in, in the 11th grade. And that's when I turned over to, uh, I changed to, you know, theater and I started doing a lot of theater work and, and school and the, and the drama department and, duet acting, uh, prose interpretation, poetry interpretation, stuff like that, you know. And, and I really got into that. That's where I kind of started this this interest in, in, in acting and that sort of thing. And uh, one, of my, one of my favorite movies still to, to this day is Remember the Titans? Yeah. Where, yeah. They, where they were kind of putting two schools together, uh, a predominantly white school and a predominantly black school. Um, and there was a lot of micro racisms that the players would have to face was that the case for you too yeah i i I recall you know in corpus christi carol used to have a lot more hispanic kids when i went to carol there were like maybe less than 200 hispanic kids in a school of maybe 1800 kids and the reason that was is that they had built a new high school and they gerrymandered the district to gerrymander all the Hispanics into that school, the new school. And so the Hispanics that were going to Carroll were no longer there because they had drawn the school district in such a way that 
we put all the Hispanics over here at Moody High School. But I recall, you know, back then when you, you know, how you, when you uh, fill out a form, it says white, black, some other Asian, whatever. And then for Hispanics, it said other, you know, and, you know, you had to check other. And so people started calling, if they wanted to call you uh, a name, they'd say, ah, you're just another, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, wanted to kind of jump back into y- you going to college, right? Uh, Houston Cougars, uh, first in your family. Uh, I-, I know the difficulties of going to college and actually being able to pay the tuition and going through that journey in its own. How did you go about financing it? Well, as I said, my high school counselor told me he didn't think I was college material. Uh, I was the first one to go to college in my family, so I didn't have any role models, anybody to tell me, you know, older brothers say, well, here's what you do. You apply here and this and that, you know, and if my counselor had done his job, he would have told me all that stuff, right, Mm -hmm. about going to college, but he didn't. So I just applied at the local school and got in, Uh, and then a friend of mine said, hey, I'm I'm moving to Houston uh, to go to the University of Houston. You want to go? And I said, sure. I know. I'll go. You know, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know. You know, of course, a lot of people say, why are you going to Houston? That's the murder capital of the world. Why would you want to go? <laughs> this was back in 69, 70, you know. But anyway, to, back to your question. Uh, I didn't know anything about how to, you know, financial aid or anything like that. I mean, yeah. I... I didn't learn about financial aid till my sophomore year. So when I was in Houston, I was working two jobs uh, and going to class. I was working midnight to seven as a radio DJ. And then I was working as a night auditor at a hotel in downtown Houston on Saturdays and Sundays. So my schedule was midnight to seven. I did the radio show. I got off work, went home slept for a few hours, woke up, got something to eat, did my homework for the next day at school, got ready to go work at midnight again. And that was, you know, five days a week. And then on the weekends, I did uh, a night auditor work at at this national chain hotel, downtown hotels, I think. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was, it was eating my lunch, man. I was, how long were you doing that for? Almost two years. And and it wasn't until a friend of mine said, man, you just ought to apply for financial aid. I said, what's that? (laughs) Nobody's ever, nobody's ever told me about financial aid. He said, they give you money to go to college. I said, really? He said, yeah. So he showed me, you know, what to do and who, to, where to go. So I went and applied for financial aid. And man, I got it just like that, you know. That's amazing. And yeah, and so I quit those other two jobs and just went to school and did, you know, my on-campus job, which, you know, work-study program. that mm-hmm. They gave me scholarship. They gave me loans. They gave me some grants. And I did a little, I had a work-study job on campus. And all that paid for, for my schooling, so. Yeah, but see, you like stayed I, busy. <laughs> but like I said, if I'd have had any role models or a good high school counselor, I would have known about all that stuff. But since I was the first one, you know, I did, I, I didn't know. I just learned yeah. as I went along, you know. So yeah, 
it's it's that's just such a glaring example of what a big difference like one good role model role model or one good mentor can make yeah. in your life like i you know you had you were able to figure yourself out and you know make it out okay or more than okay but you know makes you wonder how many kids who probably are bright and you know would otherwise have a bright future who just never got that chance who never were able to figure out or didn't get the role models and how many of them just never uh, panned out to who they could have been it's crazy yeah that's true. And like I said, and I think back to that counselor and wonder how many other Hispanic kids he said those yeah. words to, you know. Yeah. Did you send him any of your acceptance letters from the 13 law schools? A little carbon <laughs> copy? <laughs> no, I wish I had now, but, you know, I mean, I, I just, I totally put him out of my mind, you know, after that. But I've Good. often thought, you know, I ought to go back to Carroll High School and see if I can look at my records, you know, and make make yeah. a request for my high school records and see what if what if anything he said. But I mean, I it was so it was so crazy because I graduated in the top at least fifteen percent of my class. I think I was my my class rank was seventy five out of five hundred plus students, you know. Wow. And and he's telling me I'm not college material. Man. That just didn't make, didn't make any sense. Hopefully he wasn't in that role for too long after that. (laughs) I hope not. Yeah. So in college, did you, were you able to find mentorship or were you able to find not even just mentorship, I guess like friendships in general of of people who helped you along the way, recognize that, you know, you're this kid who's from a first generation Mexican family, doesn't necessarily have this whole thing figured out and kind of put their arm around you or helped you when they could, you know, and did you have any of that at, at any point during this college career? Yeah. Yeah, I actually did. Um, of course, you know, the friend that told me about financial aid, I, I, I'm, I'm forever indebted to him. And then once I got the financial aid, as I said, I had this uh, on-campus work-study job. I worked at the audiovisual aids department and whenever a professor uh, needed a, a film shown or something to his class, they would order it from us. We'd take it, go across campus to wherever he was, and run the projector and that sort of thing for the for the for the class. And uh, but the lady who ran the audiovisual aids department, she knew that I was kind of struggling, you know, money wise and that sort of thing. And uh, but she also knew she she saw my potential and all. But so she took it upon herself to give me extra little jobs that came through because, for example, you have uh, student groups that Mm -hmm. want to show films on the weekends in one of the local campus auditoriums, but the projectors have to be run by uh, an authorized person from the uh, audiovisual aids department. And, you know, it was like an extra 50, 100 bucks to go run that film on a Friday and a Saturday, you know? And so this lady always came to me first, you know, would you like to do this this weekend? Give you some extra money. I said, sure, I'd love to. And so, I mean, she was always helping me that way, you know, and then I had some professors that were uh, very helpful in trying to, you know, show me the way and, and, and friends, you know, friends that, Mm -hmm. that had a more of a grounding about what college is like and all that kind of stuff to take me, under their wings and showed me, you know, what to do and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, there were those kinds of people along the way at, at the university of Houston. Um, but I, I mentioned that I got financial aid my sophomore year, but 
after that, I dropped out and joined the Peace Corps. So uh, yeah. I always wanted I'd always wanted to be in the Peace Corps, and they were on campus and about that time. And I interviewed with them, and they they said, "Yeah, we want you." And uh, we have a group going to Sierra Leone. Would you be interested? And I said. I don't know where Sierra Leone is. I thought it was South America. <laughs> I had to think but, about that for a second too. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was kind of like in the middle of the spring semester. And I said, you know, I, I really want to finish my semester. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you have something in the summer, something going, put together something in the summer, you know, I'd be, I might be interested. So sure enough, at the end of the semester, they called again and they said, we have a group going to Nicaragua. Uh, would you be interested? And I said, yes. You know, I mean, I knew where Nicaragua was. And, yeah. <laughs> and I did, said, you, did you did you have to drop off in order or drop out in order to attend this Peace Corps over the summer? Or what was the... Well, it was a two-year. It's a two-year... A two-year commitment. Oh, commitment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I just finished my spring semester and then just, you know, took a two-year break. And did the Peace Corps uh, experience. What was your draw to doing Peace Corps at that time? Like, what was the big draw, I guess, for you? Well, number one was obviously the travel and getting to, you know, go somewhere else. I'd never been out of the country before then, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. Texas, that was it. Never really been out of Texas either. You know, the idea of going to, to help other people in a less developed countries. Back then, the Peace Corps was very much uh, what they called a generalist. You know, they hired people to go work in agriculture and that sort of thing. And and by the time I went, uh, they had groups of Harvard MBAs going to countries and working with, with uh, entrepreneurs and small small businesses, you know, teaching them how to grow the business and that sort of thing. But then they also had you know, some agricultural type people. And uh, I was going to work in agriculture initially, but then they said they wanted me to work with credit unions, establishing credit unions in in Nicaragua. Uh, Because prior to my doing that, all the credit unions in Nicaragua were what they call closed credit unions. And by that, I mean, if you worked at this particular factory and they had a credit union for all the employees of that factory, then you could participate. But if you just lived nearby, you couldn't. And so they wanted to establish what they call open credit unions that were open to anybody that lived in a certain community or a certain radius from this community. And, um, you know, so they said, you know, you're the guy, you know, we want you to do that and set those up. And so I I, cre- I set up four credit unions in four different little towns in northern Nicaragua and basically worked myself out of a job. I went in wow. and I talked to folks. I put together a, a board of directors from the local people, you know, and taught them Robert's Rules of Order, how to run a meeting, you know. <laughs> and, and, of course, there were some people that had some knowledge of finances and that sort of thing, some younger people, you know, and they became the treasurers and that sort of thing. But basically the idea was to set up the credit union and work myself out of a job and let them run it. You know, initially I was more involved and then I got less and less involved. Um, but we, I, you know, started four credit unions and um, I, I left Nicaragua after a couple of years and then came back through 
later on. And the, the, the main credit union in the town that I lived in had started out as just a little shack, you know, so like something you can buy at Home Depot, you know, a uh, little garden shack kind of thing. And when I came back, they had grown so much, they built their own building, you know, brick building, which they housed their offices. And they also used it as a community center, you know, where wow. you could have you could have weddings and that kind of stuff, you know, so make a little money. But mm-hmm. yeah, they all they just they just took off. So that was a great a great experience. So how many years was that altogether in Nicaragua? I was in Nicaragua two years, okay. but I you did the I, full two. Yeah, and my okay. first year I did that uh, credit union thing. But as I said, I worked myself out of a job in all of those uh, credit unions, and so I took another job in Managua, which is the capital of Nicaragua, capital city. Because I was, I was always taking photos, you know, I've always been a pho- photographer, you know, amateur photographer doing stuff and working. And I taught myself how to do, uh, you know, work in the dark room and develop, you know, film and that sort of thing. And as it happened, the local guys, the two Peace Corps volunteers in Nicaragua and Managua that did that for the Peace Corps were leaving because their time was up. And every time I came to Managua, I would spend time with them. And they let me develop film and all that stuff. So they knew I had experience. So they they recommended me to take their place. And so then I became the audiovisual aid specialist for Peace Corps Nicaragua. And what I did there is if another volunteer needed a, a slide uh, presentation on how to build a latrine or, you know, how to do something else, whatever, they would come to me and I would put together uh you know, the slide presentation, I'd make posters for them. Uh, we had a group of women who, uh, female volunteers that were working with the local women in this particular town, uh, teach, you know, doing stuff like uh, sewing and decorative sewing and, and knitting and that sort of thing. And, and she wanted to use a lot of the local flowers and stuff uh, to make patterns out of for them. So I came out there, took photographs, and then I made drawings and made patterns for them so that they could then use to do those those projects. And so it was that kind of thing. I also set up a, uh, a ham radio network for Peace Corps volunteers that we had that were in the in the rainforest. There was a, a, an area of Nicaragua that that we couldn't get to very often because it rained in nine or ten months out of the year. And so we never knew what was going on with those people out there. And so we set up this Peace Corps radio network, and every morning I'd get on the radio and I'd call these guys, say, how you guys doing? Is everything okay? You need anything? If somebody was going their <laughs> way, you know, we'd send them supplies and that kind of stuff. And uh, so that was kind of interesting. You know, I mean, first of all, learning all about ham radios and, and setting up a network and finding the people to help us do all that. And, uh, and, and so that was the second job I had in the Peace Corps. Uh, like the AT&T if, of Nicaragua. I, Nicaragua. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if I didn't know better, you probably, it's like, it's like setting the foundations for a career in engineering. Like a lot of your <laughs> roles, even at Houston and college, you're working in the AV department and then you've naturally gravitated towards that in Nicaragua as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that was, I mean, it was all new to me, you know, it was, it was great. Yeah. 
great fun, great learning experience. And speaking of uh, ham radio operators, you know, that's how we kept in touch. I would call my mentor, Alan Custer. I met several ham radio operators in Managua, and they said, hey, if you ever want to call back home, let us know. And so they do a little patch up, you know, uh, through the ham radio and just see if they can find somebody in the near area in Corpus Christi and another ham radio guy would answer it. Then they would connect me by phone to Alan Custer. So I would talk to wow. them. I would talk to my family, you know, it was, that, it was great. What was year, great what year was that? That would have been, uh, 70, 70 to 72 when I was in yeah. Nicaragua. So, so 50 years later, we're now, uh, Recording a plat- recording a podcast on an online platform, speaking you- from two different locations in Austin and Chicago. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> back then it was you know ham radio operators, and I mean it was crazy because I would you're trying to find somebody and you'd get somebody uh, some other country you know responding and say, well you know I know somebody down there. Let me see if I can you know r- yeah. rouse them up, and then they call somebody and you know it was amazing the whole ham radio operator system. So what ultimately uh, then brought you back? You know, that ended, um, you finished that. What was kind of your journey towards getting back to the States once you had done your time with the Peace Corps? Well, when I left the Peace Corps, there was another big uh, adventure. Uh, I had a friend from Austin whose name is John Willis. And he and I were in contact the whole time I was in the Peace Corps. And he wanted to come down and meet up and hitchhike through South America. And wow. so so when my time was almost up, John came down and uh, we, you know, I I got my, my paperwork done with the Peace Corps. And when you leave the Peace Corps, they give you a couple thousand dollars, you know, sort of as severance pay, I guess, you know. And mm-hmm. I sent all my stuff home to Corpus Christi and John and I took off hitchhiking from, from Nicaragua and uh, we hitchhiked for six months through South America. Um, you know, wow. John had pretty much finished all his requirements to graduate from the University of Texas, except for the language requirement. And he said, I want to do Spanish, but I don't want to do it in a classroom. I want to do it in person. So, you know, everywhere we went, he tried to talk Spanish to people and you know, people would laugh at him and he'd, and he'd say, well, okay, so how do you say it correctly? You know, and so, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to, you know, to say something wrong. And then at night he would do, I had a book from the Peace Corps that was, that they used for teaching Spanish and he would study that and he'd ask me to give him tests and stuff. And he'd always say, what does that sign say, David? What does this say? You know, yeah. And when he came back, he told me later, he he placed out of like 20 hours of Spanish, you know, at the <laughs> university from that experience. But yeah, we hitchhiked through South America. We The plan was to go down to Tierra del Fuego and then work our way up the coast of Brazil to, to uh, Rio to be there for Carnival and then keep going up the coast to the mouth of the Amazon and sail the Amazon till we got to Venezuela and then come up through Venezuela and back to Central America and back to the U.S. That was the plan. But What a, ju- what a journey. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I never made it to Brazil. After about five months on the road, I mean, we had spent like a month on the Galapagos Islands. 
We spent uh, a, a great amount of time in Quito. I mean, Ecuador and Bolivia. We went to Lake Titicaca and, you know, s- skied outside of La Paz and, you know, did all this other stuff. And and it was, uh, I think, December, right after Christmas. We were right at the border of uh, Argentina and and Bolivia, about to cross into into Argentina. And just all of a sudden, I said, you know, I think I've had enough. I want to go home. So yeah. so I I said, I'm going to go home. And John said he wanted to keep going. So he did. He kept going. And I turned around and hitchhiked back to Texas. <laughs> and uh, all the, Did you go back to Houston or were you going back to Corpus Christi area? I went back to Corpus Christi and... Okay. And, and spent a couple of months there. Worked at the at the local docks in Corpus Christi. That was during the time of the Russian wheat deal, and mm-hmm. uh, so there was a lot of work there. And so I worked on the docks for several months. I worked twelve hours a day, seven days a week, you know, and just saved up a bunch of money. And then came back to Houston and re-enrolled in school and decided I want to go. It was during the Peace Corps that I decided I wanted to go to law school. And so I came back to Houston and I said, I'm going to go straight through. I went, you know, fall, spring, summer, fall, you know, spring, graduated as quickly as I could. And, uh, and then what was your major? I started out as a theater major at the University okay. of Houston. And, and I was in classes with Randy Quaid uh, and um, – a guy named Brent Mintz, who later changed his name to Brent Spiner. He was in uh, one of those uh, space shows. He was Commander Data in one of those shows, uh, you know, outer space things. And uh, are you familiar? We're talking Star Trek? Star Trek, yeah, Star Trek. He was the white-faced guy, Commander Data. He was in my class. And are you familiar with Ferris Bueller's Day Off? The movie, That's a fi- yeah, of course. Yeah, Fer- yeah, yeah. Ferris Bueller's mother in that in that movie is a woman named Cindy Pickett, and she was in my class also. So we had all these people that were that went on to to have careers in 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 uh, movies and such. And uh, but I, when I came back from the Peace Corps, I changed majors to psychology and political science, and graduated with that. Uh, I also took a couple of years to learn Portuguese because since I didn't make it to Brazil uh, on my <laughs> Peace Corps trip, I said, I'm going to go to Brazil one day. But to this day, I have not made it to Brazil. I have made it to Portugal, but not to Brazil. Uh, it's not too late. Huh? It's not too late. That's true. Not too late. That's yeah. true. But uh, uh, yeah, so I changed majors and went and decided to go to law school. From from there, so so let's let's dive into that journey from law school to judge. Uh, <laughs> what was it, what, what was that like? Well, interesting thing about Georgetown going to Georgetown um, is you know they, I remember when they called me and they said, okay, you know we call you know let you know that you've been accepted into law school, law school, and mm-hmm. you know we'll talk about it and all that stuff and. One of the questions I asked was, how much is it going to cost me? And they said, remember, this was 50 some odd years ago. They said, uh, it's going to cost you $3,000 a semester. And I said, I can't do that. That's too much money. I can't afford it. 
<laughs> and they said, look, don't worry about the money. Just get yourself to D.C. and we will figure out a way for you to go to Georgetown Law because we want you here. And, you know, Georgetown is a Catholic, you know, the Jesuit school, you know, and they're all about education and all that. And so I took them at their word and I drove to D.C. and uh, they, they, they gave me scholarship grants, uh, loans and made it work. And, you know, I mean, to this day, I am very, very uh, indebted to Georgetown. And as soon as I started working, I started making contributions to Georgetown Law every year to where now I've got like 50 years of donations to the school, you know, to help other students, you know. But but it was, uh, I mean, it was the best decision I, I, I made next to marrying my wife. But... <laughs> Good save. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then you finish up law school, um, and then you decide to come back to Austin shortly after that. I know not immediately after. Kind of what what was that journey like? Well, I um, yeah, I graduated from Georgetown, and I stayed around in D.C. I worked for the Public Defender's Office in Washington D.C which is one of the best public defender's offices in the whole country. Um, you know, they get asked to file briefs with the Supreme Court on particular cases and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, But once we decided to start a family, we said, you know, we want to move back to Texas because that's where our families are and we want to have a support system and that sort of thing. So, you know, we decided to move back to Texas. I started applying for jobs in Texas and interestingly, a lot of my friends at Georgetown were saying, why do you want to go to Austin? There's so many lawyers in Austin because of the University of Texas. You know, they graduate so many people and they all want to stay in Austin. And and I said, well, you know, I don't think I'm competing with all the lawyers in Austin. I'm competing with a smaller subset because I speak Spanish. And, you know, and I'm sure I can find a job where somebody, you know, needs a Spanish speaking attorney. And so that's how I looked at it. And we we moved to Austin. And I remember applying with the with the district attorney's office and the local district attorney said, talked to me, said, I really want to hire you, but I don't have a position for you right now. Uh, if you can do something for the next three months, you know, something else. He said, I promise you in three months, I will hire you. I said, okay. So I, uh, I took a job with a municipal court as a, as a prosecutor in the local court here in Austin. And I did that for three months. And sure enough, after three months, uh, the DA, Ronnie Earl, called me up and he said, you ready to come work for the district attorney's office? I said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So and turns out that the reason he was so keen on hiring me is because I spoke Spanish. And <laughs> out of 25 lawyers on his staff, he had no Spanish-speaking attorneys. Uh, this was, of course, you wow. know, back in 70, I mean, 80. So, uh, yeah. And he was getting a lot of grief from a local uh, county commissioner named Richard Moya, because he had no Spanish-speaking attorneys on his staff. And Moya, you know, wanted, he's Hispanic, and he said, you need to have people, you know, that are Hispanic because we have a lot of Hispanics in Austin. And, and so Ronnie Earl, when he hired me, 
he personally took me over to Richard Moya's office and introduced me to Richard Moya. He said, this is, I want you to meet David Garza, our first Spanish-speaking attorney, you know, and and Commissioner <laughs> Moya said, you know, he was real nice to me, but to Ronnie Earl, yeah. he said, so what? That's just one. You need more. <laughs> and uh, and now, of course, they've got, I don't know, over 100 lawyers, and, and I'm sure they yeah. have a lot of Spanish speakers, but... But yeah, that was, you know, that was, and that has been the case in a lot of things that I've done, you know, and what I've told my kids, you know, you need to speak Spanish because it's going to open some doors for you. When I first, go ahead. Sorry, I was just kind of hearing you say that. It always makes me wonder, uh, you know, how did being a first generation Mexican, Hispanic individual, Spanish speaking, how did that help you along the way? I know that's one like very exemplary story of that, but there must have been other points along that road where that, it you know, it started working in your favor after kind of early in your life. It was a barrier to yeah. entry, so to speak, for yeah. you. And then later on, it became something that was favorable. What, like when did that start changing? And are there any other examples of that? Yes, but I will give you an example of sort of an epiphany I had back when I was a freshman in college. I was dating this uh, Anglo girl uh, at the time, and and there was there was one day when she said something to me that was just like I said, an epiphany. She said, "You know, you are so lucky." You speak two languages. You have this beautiful pigment that everybody wants to have. You know, this everybody likes to get tan. They want to, you know. You have this permatan. You know, and and she said, "You're just so lucky." You know, she said, "I wish I had your pigmentation." Yeah. After she said it, I thought to myself, "You know, she's right. Why should I be the one made to feel less than somebody else?" When I speak two languages and, you know, I, you know, I'm kind of way ahead of so many other folks. And, mm-hmm. and so from that point on, you know, it's like, hey, you know, it's your problem. If you can't handle me, you know, because of who I am or, or what I represent to you, then, you know, that's your problem. But no, that that was like when I was at Georgetown, uh, my third year of law school, I did a criminal defense clinic where as students, we got a special license to go represent defendants in, in the criminal courts in Washington, D.C., you know, with a supervising attorney, you know, standing yeah. next to us. And uh, I remember, you know, there were a lot of Spanish speakers in D.C. and also Portuguese speakers, you know. So I, I offered my services to any of the other students in that clinic or anybody else, you know, the judges. I said, if, if you ever need anybody to speak Spanish, uh, you know, to help you with a case, let me know. And I remember one time I got a I got a call from one of the judges saying, can you go down to this hospital and talk to this person? They have somebody there that needs some help. They think she's speaking Spanish, but it doesn't quite sound like the Spanish everyone knows. And so I went down there and I talked to her while she was she was Brazilian. She was speaking Portuguese, you know. <laughs> and and as soon as I started talking, I, mean, she, I heard her talk. I said, oh, you, see, you know. So I started, hey, você fala português and blah, 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 you know. And so, uh, you know, I was able to get her some help that way. And, but yeah. a lot of other students would come to me. So, I, you know, I, I started to see that 
you know, that was a, a plus, you know, I mean, to be able to speak another language and help people in, in, in the criminal law area or, or any area, you know, so, so yeah. And then yeah. when I came down here, like I said, my, that first job, because I spoke Spanish, when I first got appointed to be a municipal court judge, one of the reasons was that they were looking for more Spanish speaking attorneys and, and to be judges. And, and so that was, again, another entry, you know. And, and I always told my kids, you know, my, my wife is Anglo, you know, our kids, our daughter looks very Anglo. Aaron is kind of in between, you know, and uh, he's got sort of, you know, my skin color a little bit. And, uh, you know, but I always told them, you know, if you learn Spanish, people are going to be falling over themselves when you graduate from college wanting to hire you. And that was the case with my daughter when she graduated. You know, she works for Dell now, but, you know, her first job was with a company that did business with Dell. And they had contracts down in Central America, you know, Costa Rica, Panama, the Dominican Republic. And she got to go down there and she is fully, fully fluent in Spanish. And so, you know, and that's just helped her move on up the, the ladder. Was that a focus in your home? Like, hey, let's speak in Spanish with one another, or were you often communicating in English? What was that well, like? Well, my parents only spoke Spanish at home. My okay. mother had a fourth grade education. She didn't, you know, she she didn't go far, but uh, but she was very smart, and she knew that you know that education was the key uh, to you know to improving one's status in life. You know, so. Uh, but at home we all spoke Spanish, and but all the siblings spoke English to each other, you know. And it's funny because my wife says, you know, whenever we all get together and she's she's with us, with my siblings, we just keep going back and forth, you know. We speak Spanish, English, you know, and we start speaking English and then you know, go into Spanish for for a few sentences and then back to English, you know. And so she says. That just drives me crazy because I'm having to translate in my mind, you know, everything you're saying and stuff. But, uh, uh, but yeah, no, we spoke English. The siblings and the parents spoke Spanish. And, uh, but yeah, that was a, I think that, you know, because growing up, I remember I didn't speak, uh, learn to speak English till I was in the first grade. Uh, I think I, I was in, in this program called a Head Start program that, you know, Johnson or somebody had, you know, established for minority kids to learn to speak English. And so that was my first introduction to English the summer before first grade. And I remember going into first grade, we were punished for speaking for speaking Spanish in the classroom. Yeah. Wow. Or on the playground. You couldn't even speak Spanish on the playground. All the kids were Hispanic, Hispanic. All the teachers were Hispanic. But they wanted you, it's like they wanted you to assimilate as quickly as possible into the English speaking, you know, society. Uh, and so that's why they, you know, they had this whole deal about not, you know, punishing me. I remember uh, my first day in class, I needed to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And so I raised my hand and I said in Spanish, you know, may I go to the bathroom? And I remember the teacher saying, well, David, how do you say that in English? And I didn't know how to say that in English. And I just stared at her and I was like crossing my legs and crossing my legs. And finally, I just ran out of the classroom and went to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, I mean, what am I supposed to do? You know, uh, but yeah. the, and then part of the problem with with that whole experience was that I have siblings who didn't teach their kids Spanish because of that experience of being punished for speaking Spanish. And so I guess the thinking, again, even through them, was my kids need to speak English and assimilate into this society. And so I have, you know, nephews and nieces that, that don't speak Spanish, you know, even though wow. they're Hispanic, you know, surnames and all that. So, yeah. But that's part of that whole experience, I think. of. I wanted to circle back and ask you, go back to when you were first appointed a judge Mm -hmm. and obviously Austin, Texas in general, high Hispanic Mexican population. What, what was the reception of not just like your peers and colleagues, but the actual individuals that were in the court, um, kind of as you know, you became this one of first, if not the first in Austin, Spanish speaking judge, what was that reception like from other Hispanic individuals to have someone kind of other that looked like them, spoke their language, uh, what was that like? Well, it was eye-opening to me. I hadn't really thought about it very much until uh, my very first day on the bench. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a full docket. I mean, the, the courtroom was packed with people. And there were, of course, you know, I'd say at least half or more than half of the people were Hispanic. And, you know, they you had the bailiff who says, all rise, and, you know, everybody stands up, and you walk out and get on the bench, and you're up high, and you're looking down at people. But mm-hmm. I, to this day, I remember the look on some of those people's faces. When they saw me coming in as the judge, it was like a, a look of recognition and of of like, oh, wow, he's he looks like me. He's one of us. You know, I mean, I could just see it on their faces, you know, Mm -hmm. and representation really, really matters. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. And and then when they came up to the bench and I call their name, they came up to the bench. You know, I would always ask them, you know, do you speak English? And they'd say, they'd say, yes, but, you know, I prefer Spanish, you know, and then I say, okay. So I start talking to them in Spanish and they'd say, you know, I, I can express myself better in Spanish. I can understand what you're saying to me better in Spanish, even though I speak some English, you know. So so that was kind of eye-opening to me. Uh, and, and I always try to, you know, when people speak Spanish, I, you know, under Texas law, we have to have court interpreters present for mm-hmm. anybody that speaks another language, basically, but mainly Spanish. And so I would have a court interpreter standing there and I would tell the people, okay, I'm going to speak to you in English. She's going to tell you what I said in Spanish. And then you can say it, answer her in English, I mean, in Spanish, and she'll tell me in English. But, you know, it was kind of this crazy roundabout thing. And after a while, (laughs) I just said, forget it. I'm just going to talk to this person in Spanish, you know, and and just, it was just so much faster, you know. Uh, Yeah. But yeah, that what, was, what 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 do the stenographers do? Like, if you start speaking in Spanish, <laughs> like, do they do they start ty- typing in Spanish as well, or well, they have upside no. down exclamation marks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, upside down question marks and exclamation marks. Uh, 
Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't think I ever had that that uh, anybody ever say something to me about that. The, the stenographers were usually there during trials, you know, but just during uh, docket right. calls, you know, it wasn't. They weren't there, you know, for that. They didn't take all that down. But, but yeah, it was an interesting, you know, situation. And and then I used to teach this to other judges about using interpreters and all that. And a lot mm-hmm. of them, especially like down in South Texas, where it's majority Hispanic, I said, well, we can't afford interpreters. So we just, you know, do it all in Spanish. You know, well, you know, the law says you have to have interpreters. And, you know, what if we can, you know, the prosecutor is Hispanic, the defense lawyer is Hispanic, the judge is Hispanic. Couldn't we just do a trial, the whole thing in Spanish? I said, well, you could, but it, the law says that you have, it's an open courtroom and the public is, you know, is free to come in and observe, and they need to be able to understand what's going on. And if, you yeah. know, they're English speaking only, and you're doing this whole thing in Spanish, you know, this isn't Mexico, you know, it's it's the U.S. And so so there were some complications that way. But but here, you know, I mean, that was always a, something that impressed me when I first started, you know, this the just people recognizing, you know, that, hey, you know, there's a judge that looks like us and we can explain ourselves and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this today because to be uh, to be transparent and frank, like it's something I found myself thinking about a lot today um, with this leak of the uh, overturn of the Roe v. Wade. Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about how much it's going to impact uh, low economic women, women of color, one of the points that I was reading was, you know, people of high socioeconomic status, if they're a female, they'll be able to find their health care sure. as they please, regardless of the law. Yep. And it's really going to impact these individuals with barriers of entry. And I just kept thinking about, you know, it's people that making these decisions that don't represent the people that are going to be affected in essence. And it just really made me think of how equal representation is so critical exactly and, you know you think about that yeah in times like this especially yeah and that's i think that's why i think it's such a good thing that you know judge katanji brown jackson you know got uh yeah. pointed to the to the to the to the supreme court and that you need to, and that you have an hispanic there you know and sotomayor and you know other females mm-hmm. and you know i think it's important that you know the whole country, you know, be represented that way as far as the different groups of, of people in the country. So, uh, no, but that's that's a good point that you make. Yeah. Awesome. So, Judge Garza, I mean, we've been talking, learning about your story here, and you, you just have a long list of accomplishments. Um, what was your family's reaction to all these milestones in your life? Like, I mean, you were the first one going out there doing this. Uh Took a break in college, too. I was wondering what their perspective there was. Uh, came back and finished and went to college or finished your college degree, law school. A lot of things happened in your career. Uh, what was your family's reaction to all of it? Well, uh, you know, thinking back on that, I know my parents were proud of me, but I don't know that they fully understood the significance, you know, of, you know, what mm. I was accomplishing now, my, my siblings, you know, as I said, eventually most of my siblings got either college degrees or at least a couple of years of college under their belts. 
you know, um, and they understood, you know, that it was kind of a, a big deal. You know, when I when I graduated from law school, that was a big deal, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you know, and my parents, like I said, they, you know, they, they were proud, obviously, but I don't know that they fully understood the whole significance of, of, you know, what I had done. Um, but, you know, uh, I, my, like I said, my mom was really smart and she understood that education was important and it was the key, you know, f- to getting out of poverty and the key to improving your status in life. And uh, so she always insisted that all of us were going to graduate from high, from high school at a minimum because yeah. I had a lot of cousins that didn't graduate. I mean, they dropped out of high school, I mean, out of school in the, in the middle, middle school years, you know, because I had uncles that followed the crops, you know, they pick fruit, you know, they go to Florida, they go to California and they take the kids out of school and they go and, and, you know, and they get back, they missed so much schooling, you know, eventually they just kept falling further and further behind. And at the first opportunity they had, they dropped out of school and, you know, did whatever they could uh, and whatever kind of jobs they could get. You know, my, I had an uncle that was always trying to get my mom and her family to, you know, join them and go follow the crops and go pick fruits, you know, bring the kids and all this. And my mom said, nope, we're going to stay put. They need to go to school and they need to graduate. And yeah. uh, and all of us did, you know, I think. And I am eternally grateful for her for, for doing that. Yeah. Good, good on your mom. She uh, almost not single-handedly, but played a critical role in kind of changing the trajectory of kind of everyone within her, you know, yeah. first-hand family tree there, yeah. encouraging yeah. the education and the family. Like that's, uh, it's something I think resonates probably with me and Sabruth a lot because, you know, growing up for us with our immigrant parents and a bunch of our friends, that was, you know, every day, that's all we'd hear. Make sure you do well in school, make sure you go to college, make sure you have a good career. Like they, they, they didn't care about anything else or they did obviously, but that was like the priority. If the, if we were helping ourselves set ourselves up for success and becoming who they were hoping for ourselves and making sure we had a good future like that, that's all that really mattered at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah My parents did not care how the football game went. They, 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 yeah, they could care as less. As, <laughs> as, lo- as long as my homework was done on time on Monday, I, I was, I was good, but yeah, no, no, <laughs> Yeah, and we're the same way. I mean, that's a big thing with our kids, you know. I remember, yeah. you know, Aaron is a, was a very good athlete. You know, I don't know, you know, you may know Ross. Yeah, he played he college played, ball. He played baseball at Vanderbilt, and then he played four years wow. of professional baseball in the minor leagues. Yep. And, uh, you know, in high school, he was a great football player. He got a lot of attention from some colleges. To He was a wide receiver. And, uh, uh, but he let it be known to the football coach that he wanted to play baseball in college and not football. And so, the, you know, after the schools learned about that, you know, he didn't get any more letters from them, but he got letters from A&M and, you know, other schools like that. And, uh, oh, wow. But uh, he ended up playing uh, baseball at Vanderbilt. But the point I was going to make was when he went from eighth grade middle school to to the high school ninth grade but he did play sports in the ninth grade because he had a uh uh 
hairline fracture and and bone in the lower back, and and he had to wear uh, one of these Brace. braces. You know, I, yep. forget, I forget what they're called. Uh, TLSO. It's what? TLSO. Yeah. Thoraco lumbar support. Right, and it, his whole chest and all that. And wore it all day, except when he slept at night and took a shower. But he had to wear it for months. You know, eventually weaned him off. So he didn't play any sports as a freshman. But sophomore year, he was automatically asked to join the varsity, you know, without having played freshman or anything else. I mean, he was that good of an athlete. And uh, uh, so when that happened, I recall Aaron saying, Dad, is it okay if I don't take uh, advanced placement classes and just do the regular classes? Because I'm going to be playing football. I'm going to be playing baseball, you know, travel baseball, this and that. And I said, nope, you can do both. (laughs) You can take the advanced placement classes and you can excel in sports because I know you can do it. And we're, you know, so that's what he did. And, you know, he ended up graduating top 10% at Westlake. And then got into Vanderbilt, got a degree from Vanderbilt. So, you yeah. Know. Yeah. Man, I mean, that's amazing parroting there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot into that because some of the questions I wanted to ask you were regarding that. But, you know, at this point, you're, you're happily married. You've got two kids, as you've alluded to. You've got a couple grandkids, another one on the way here very soon. And you've touched on this a little bit. But, you know, if there's like one or two of really big life lessons you've really tried to instill in your children throughout your life, what would you say those would be? Well, that work, hard work, you know, can get you whatever it is you want. You know, I mean, I always told them education was important and you Mm -hmm. can do whatever you want to do, be whatever you want to be if you're willing to put in the work and the sacrifice that's required. Uh, love that you know that that's uh and, and you know like i said that was an example of you know he wanted to take it easy and, and just do the regular mainstream classes whereas you know i mean he was in the something and talented the gifted and talented program when he was in the yeah. second grade you know and and he got to do it and so that just kind of continued through high school and and, and our daughter the same way. She was uh, in National and Hispanic Scholar, got a scholarship to the University of Texas and, uh, you know, has done real well. But, but, yeah, education and working hard and making good decisions in everything you do, you know. Mm-hmm. Not, not just following the crowd, but deciding for yourself, you know. Is that what I should be doing, you know, or not? You know, maybe I should go this way instead of that way. And, and so, you know, that's been a, that's been a good, a good thing. And then the other thing is, you know, that a family is important, that they need to, you know, be close to their family. And, you know, my son and my daughter, you know, they're, they're really good friends and they really, you know, love each other. And, and, uh, you know, we're a very close knit family. And so we do a lot of things together. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about doing, um, you know, we've been married 46 years, going to celebrate 46 years in June of this year. 50th is coming up. We're talking about, <laughs> and we told the kids the other day, I said, here's what we're thinking about doing on our 50th anniversary. We want to want to take both you and you, both of your families and us, and we're all going to go to Hawaii 
going to rent the going to rent the house Amazing. and maybe a compound. You know, have, everybody has their own. Every family has their own little section of the house. Get together, spend a week up there, and you know, as a family, and just celebrate. You know, the fifty that years that we've spent together. So, yeah, I actually just had my. Uh one year anniversary so i got 49 to go to catch up there um and, and rogers rogers also recently married um but any secrets to a happy marriage that you'd like to share yes um you know as a retired judge i i do a lot of weddings i perform weddings and um one bit of information that i always give to the groom i said i always tell him i said advice rather is remember happy wife happy life i said you know <laughs> you are now two people of becoming one team you know and 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 marriage is a is teamwork i mean it's important that you work together and compromise you know it's a big part of marriage i think and and also a recognizing each other's strengths and you know, acting accordingly. Like my wife and I, I'm, I'm very right brain. She's very left brain. You know, she's a, a, a CPA, banker, numbers yeah. is her thing. And, and uh, she makes lists of everything. You know, she's very organized and very precise in everything, <laughs> you know, which is great for me. Sounds like someone else we know. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I'll have like some you know, machine that I bought, you know, like this printer here. And I say, geez, do you know if we have the, the manual for this printer? She said, I know exactly where it is. You know, she'll go to <laughs> file cabinet, pull it up, you know, or, you know, did we have that work done on the car recently? Yeah. Let me go check, you know. And she, uh, I mean, she, and she puts together lists, you know, if you send her a, you know, you're doing something, whether you send her a, a, a list of something or, or a spreadsheet, she's in heaven. <laughs> you know, whereas I, I'm, you know, right brain. I'm more creative. I do stuff, you know. I, I I like to color outside the lines, you know, whereas she's like, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, you know. So, uh, you know, I mean, but that's but but that that's the attraction, right? The opposites attract. And, you know, yeah. I understand her. Those are her strengths. And she understands, you know, and, and appreciates my strengths. I, I joke that when we got married, I said to her, you know, she's a CPA. And I said, OK, you can handle all the family money. You know, just give me an allowance. I'm happy with that. <laughs> and I'll handle any lawsuits ever brought against us. <laughs> and to this day, I think I've gotten the better end of that deal because we haven't been sued once. And, uh, you know, she balances the checkbooks and she she takes care of all the, the business money. I just give her my check. She, you know, if I want to buy something, I say, can, can we buy that? Can I afford to do that? She'd say, yeah, it's all right. You know, and <laughs> so it works out great. <laughs> that's. I feel like you're describing my marriage life because that's exactly how my yeah. wife is too. That's, like when when you uh, were describing the owner's manual, we actually have like a <laughs> filing box too, yeah. where everything goes in there, and she yeah. knows where everything is to the T. Yeah, and and that's great. <laughs> I mean, like for me, I, I love it. I, I yeah, to have somebody that organized, you know, 
And she's always telling, she's saying, you know, I need to show you where, you know, our wheels are. I need to show you where, you know, all these important papers are, because if something should happen to me, you're going to need to know where all that stuff is, you know, so. Uh, so, yeah, so yeah. I think it's important to recognize each other's strengths and, and you know, and, and and appreciate that and work with that. And, but a compromise is the big deal. I think it's a big and, and also I think it's important that that you be friends or that you were friends before, you know, you were a, a, a couple, you know, because yeah. I think, you know, if, if you're learning about each other as you're. <laughs> As you're after you've been married, that's that's a whole different thing, you know. It's literally like you're describing Savruth and his wife's uh, relationship. <laughs> she they were friends so much that she li- literally friend zoned him for <laughs> for like a year before she agreed to date him. They were just hanging out as friends for a while. She's gonna <laughs> love this episode. <laughs> Judge, we're uh, we're getting close to the end here. Okay, but, uh, you know you've li- you've lived such a an incredible life with an abundance of experience and stories, and it's been awesome hearing it. Not to be a downer, but any anything you would do differently if you could, or any any regrets along the years, you know, besides not being able to make it to Brazil, I guess. Uh, well, no, my the answer to your question, no, I don't have any regrets. Okay, uh, I don't think that. I would change anything that I went through in life because all of those events is what made me today, what I am today, the person I am today. Yeah. Um, my philosophy of life is basically everything happens for a reason. And so if something you wanted or were expecting didn't happen, then something else just as good or better is around the corner. And yeah. as an example, uh, when I took studied Portuguese at the University of Houston, it was a, a two-year program uh, called a Brazilian Area Studies Program. And then, in the over that two-year period, you study the Brazilian uh, literature, you study Brazilian history, you study Brazilian arts, and you know all that stuff. And in the process, you learn the language. And after two years of taking those classes, I was selected by the professor as the most outstanding Portuguese student in the class. And he said, he approached me and said, would you like to go to Brazil and study for a year? I can get you a scholarship. And I said, wow, that would be amazing. Yes, but I've already been accepted to Georgetown Law. And I said, I'm supposed to start in September. Can I just go for the summer? And he said, no, it has to be an academic year, nine, nine months. Yeah. And so I passed on it. You know, thinking back on it, I, I, I suppose I could have deferred uh, entrance to Georgetown Law for a year. You know, they probably would have said, OK, and let me come back after because it would have been a great experience, you know, to add to my background, you know, speaking Portuguese and all that. Uh, but I didn't. And uh, I guess there was a reason for that. The way I look at it is if I'd have gone to Brazil for that year, my wife, Mary, and I may not have gotten married, you know, may not, may have gone our separate ways, you know. And so I look at that as that something else around the corner that was just as good or better than 
you know, the other thing that I passed passed on. So so I know I don't have any regrets about anything that I've that I've done. It's been an interesting yeah. it's been an interesting experience. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I never thought I'd travel, you know, like I did hitchhiking through South America since since in our professional life since you know, we've been to, uh, retired. I mean, we've been to Europe several times. You know, we have all these plans. We're going to Portugal in a, in a couple of weeks. We're going to be Love in it. Portugal for two I mean, for a month. And uh, oh, nice. And we're talking about, you know, going to, we're already planning another trip, you know, uh, to uh, Egypt and, uh, you know, some other places like that. I mean, places that, you know, when I think back to where I started from, you know, Little Barrio and Corpus Christi. I mean, this little Barrio boy, I never even thought, imagined yeah. that I would ever get to see Paris and London and Rome and Lisbon yeah. and, you know, all these other places that I've been to. And it's just been wonderful, you know. I mean, it's just been a great experience. So I wouldn't change it. It's amazing. <laughs> so a, a closing question that we like to ask um, all of our guests uh, for their respective heritage, but what makes you Hispanic? Well, first of all, I am an American of a, of Mexican descent, so I'm proud to be uh, an American. Yes, um, but I'm proud of my what makes me Hispanic or Mexican is obviously my ancestry, my heritage, my culture, um, and and you know I don't. I've never run away from that. I've always embraced that, you know. Uh, early on, you know, there were some as as we if we as we've talked, you know, some some uh, overt or covert situations that made you feel a little bit less, and maybe you you know you didn't speak out or didn't say anything. But you know, as I said, after that epiphany from that young girl that I dated, who said, "You're so lucky," you know, you speak two languages and blah blah blah. You know, after that, it's like, yeah, that's right. You know, I should be proud of my Mexican heritage and my culture. And, you know, my father was from Mexico. Um, He came over here as a young man, uh, late teens, got into the army, you know, fought in Korea, came back. And they had this fast track for, you know, people that were not U.S. citizens, but had been in the, in the military to become U.S. citizens. And that's how he became a citizen. And, uh, you know, we still have family in Mexico. Uh, in Mexico, I could, be, I could get a Mexican passport if I wanted to because of my father's, you know, background. And, uh, but I have it to date. Um, so, yeah, my ancestry, my heritage, my culture, you know, all those things, I think, are very important. And we stress that to our kids not just Cinco de Mayo and drinking margaritas, but, you know, learning <laughs> about the history and, and where we came from and all that. And in fact, yeah. one of the things I'm, I'm doing, hopefully in the next year or so, is I'm writing down my story, uh, you know, like we've talked about here. As you should. Where, we st- yes, where I started from and all that, so that my kids will know and my grandkids will know, you know, at least my yeah. history. And, and hopefully I... You know, I will include some of my parents' history and, you know, some of my grandparents on both sides there, you know, where they came from and all that. But uh, yeah. but I think it's important, you know. I mean, I just, 
I, I don't know. I, I hate to see so many people wanting this to be, you know, a white only kind of society. But I mean, there's there's so much good in blending everything together, you know, and and embracing your heritage and your culture, you know, from another country, but still being proud to be an American, you know, and share that with other folks, I think is very important. Love it. So judge, uh, our time is pretty much wrapping up here. One thing we like to end the show with is a set of rapid fire questions. Okay. So this is, you know, we're going to ask you a question, uh, Either or, it's just whatever first thing comes to your mind, you shout it out and let us know. Troy Aikman or Joe Montana? Uh, Joe Montana. Flan or Tres Leches? Oh, Tres Leches. Definitely. Right? (laughs) Tres Leches. Sonia Sotomayor or Ruth Bader Ginsburg? I have to go with uh, Sotomayor. Okay. Although, you know, I said, although, you know, I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think she was great. But, you know, of course, got to represent with the Hispanics. So. For sure. Uh, tequila or mezcal? Oh, tequila. Definitely. Don Julio tequila. Da- specifically. It's, okay. it's the best. If you've never had it, you need to get some. Uh, we've had it a couple times. We've had it. <laughs> <laughs> you've had tequila or you've had Don Julio? Don Julio. Both. Both, yeah. <laughs> All right, good. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Brady Brunch or Three's Company? Three's Company. Breakfast taco or regular taco? Breakfast taco. All right. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? The Beatles. Pepsi or Coke? Coke. Well, Judge, this this adjourns our session today, but uh, thank you so much for taking your time out of this beautiful Tuesday evening to come and sit and talk with us. We, we really enjoyed it. This was fascinating to hear about your story and everything that's made you you and uh, the journey along the way. So uh, I know you guys got your big anniversary coming up. You got a month of travel coming up. So I wish you guys all the best and I, I hope uh, we can stay in touch and get together uh, in real time. One of these I, I days. would love that. I'd love to get together with you guys. Maybe share some Don Julio and yes. some Tres Leches, you know, <laughs> that sounds like a great time. Start with the Just time. let us know what, let us know which Island y'all select and Raj and I will be there for the 50th. <laughs> all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably going to be the, the big island, but I don't know. You know, my wife has lived in, in, in Hawaii. She, her father was in the Navy, so she was born in Corpus Christi, but, you know, spent some years in Hawaii. They had a, a house with a, a view of Diamond Head, you know, uh, and she, she, yeah. she would love to go back to Hawaii. And that's why I said, oh, you know, because we were thinking Disney World or Hawaii, you know, someone said, you don't want to go to Disney World. Wait in line, you know. You know, so many. They have the they have the Disney Resort in Hawaii, though. Yeah, they do, and we looked into that, and that's still a possibility. But I'd much rather just do get our, a compound, do our own thing. You know, have a yeah. com- and and then everybody can go and do their own. You know, whatever they want. Sure. Yeah. Of course, Aaron by then will have one child and maybe two. Who knows? You know. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're expecting their first child in August, and then um, 
you know, this is four years away, so maybe they'll have another by then. So yeah, so yeah. it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Well, I've really enjoyed this, guys. I really uh, thank you very much for asking me, and uh, uh, it helps me too in thinking about what I'm going to put down on paper someday. You know, about yep. about all this, but uh, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you thinking of me and 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 having me. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was an amazing story to, well, to hear. So, yeah. yeah, and and please let me know if you're in town. We can go get a, some tequila <laughs> and some tacos. Oh, we definitely will. All right. All right. Yes, definitely. <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, hope you enjoyed episode five. Once again, you can always find us on Instagram at the Raj and Bubs pod. You can find us on Twitter at Raj and Bubs pod. Um, you know where to listen to us over on Spotify and Apple Podcast. You can find us and listen to all our other episodes if you haven't yet, and we've got more on the way. Bubs, any closing thoughts? Nope. Thank you so much. The website's therajandbubspod.com, so if you want to find more info there. Um, but thank you all so much for listening. Cheers, guys. <laughs>